Hello and happy holidays, listeners. I wanted to give you a short update on the show before we dive into our December episode. Many of you have heard the news that the 25th frame will be shutting down at the end of the month and that our show will be joining the Criterion Cast Network. I am so excited to be joining the folks over at Criterion Cast, and I think it's really going to be a great fit for us. There has been some behind-the-scenes work this month in getting the infrastructure in place to make sure the podcast feeds migrate smoothly and to make sure that current subscriptions redirect without a hitch, which is why our December episode is coming to you so late this month. But we are hard at work in prepping for January and getting things in place to kick off the new year. Thank you again for listening, and I really hope that you enjoy the episode. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection's streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Each episode, my guests and I explore the month's new releases and expiring titles, as well as offering our recommendations from the Criterion Collection's back catalog of streaming-only titles. Dave Eaves, frequent contributor to such great podcasts as Wrong Reel, Film Baby Film, Criterion Reflections, and Just the Discs, joins me today to talk about Family Matters, films about family that are only available on the Criterion channel. I'll also check in with Michael Hutchins to talk about some of the history and statistics for the Criterion channel's limited engagements. And speaking of limited engagements, Matt Gassire of The Complete Podcast will be stopping by to discuss some tips and tricks for keeping up with each month's new and expiring titles. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is Dave Eaves, a familiar voice to listeners of Criterion Now, Film Baby Film, Wrong Reel, and Just the Discs. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Josh, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. Before we really dive into the conversation, I just wanted to check in with you, hear what you've been up to, what projects you've been working on, and a little bit about maybe what brought you into film conversations online, whether that's through <laughs> your Twitter handles, through the podcast <laughs> that you do. What really got you involved and really active in this film community? Well, I wish I could say I've been working on projects. I feel as though this year I've been a little bit lighter in my podcasting than usual, which is probably a good thing. I went pretty heavy in terms of Igmar Bergman podcasts last year. I think that mm. was partially spurred by the fact that it was the 100th anniversary of his birth, his 100th birthday. Becky Deanna and I, and at times with James Hancock with Wrong Reel, other times with John Lobinger of Film Baby Film, we recorded plenty of episodes about Igmar Bergman's filmography. Yeah. I like to believe that Becky and I hold the record for most podcast appearances on a Bergman film. I don't know if that's in the Guinness Book of World Records. If it isn't, we should certainly submit for it. Yeah podcasting again light this year certainly appeared on just the discs recently been doing some criterion now appearances i was on flixwise canada the mm. spin-off show of flixwise hosted by martin kessler where we spoke on the 1913 serial phantomas if you haven't heard that definitely check it out it's a fun little chat about mm. the phantomas legend and its impact on pop culture and to answer your follow-up questions, I really got started in all of this many years ago. Not too many years ago. I was just the type of person that would watch lots of movies, but not maybe have as many people to talk to about them. Because it's not every day that you just run into someone from work that watched the latest, not the latest, watched the latest Blu-ray of an Ingmar Bergman film or an Akira yeah. Kurosawa film. So I was finding myself turning more and more to podcasts to kind of fill that void for that conversation. But I'm sure as all of you listeners now know, 
when you're just listening to people podcast, you kind of feel slightly absent from the conversation itself. So I was noticing all these people are on Twitter as well. I should become more active in the Twitter community. I should be interacting with them more. And that's when I kind of hit my Twitter renaissance, started tweeting a lot more, started becoming more active. And slowly but surely, I started podcasting myself. It's been a great ride. Yeah. I found, too, that listening to the podcasts and getting involved in the Twitter community and in the Facebook groups became this really great way to engage with people who shared the same passion for film that I did. Again, like you said, you don't run into people who are raving about Fantomas every day. (laughs) It's one of those really lovely things about our current internet social media age. Exactly. It's hard to have passion in a vacuum. It's really hard to continue to, especially with things like Criterion. If you feel as though you're the only person in your physical world that is involved with it, it becomes less rewarding. I think it becomes far more rewarding when you have others to interact with, others people to speak about with it. And that's what's great about the Facebook groups that have kind of come about because of these podcasts, the podcasts themselves, the Twitter community, all very welcoming, all very inviting. Great chance to kind of enrich that whole discussion overall. Let's talk about the channel and your experiences with it so far. I don't think we've talked yet about the end of Filmstruck and this transition into Criterion Channel. When Filmstruck made the announcement that they were being shut down, that was just such a huge gut punch to this community. Absolutely devastating. I didn't believe it at first. When I saw the news article, I said, oh, that's fake. That's not going to happen. Yeah, and if I remember right, you were one of the people that was doing that rush to watch as much as you could on Filmstruck before it left. Was that correct? That's correct. It kind of sidelined November last year. And I'm sure if anyone is familiar with me, you know that I buy all the Criterion Blu-ray releases. So I was still buying as much as I could from the Criterion sale, but I was putting all my discs aside because at first, when we heard Filmstruck was going away, there was no exact idea of when Criterion would be back in a streaming form. I'm guessing that you signed up for the Criterion channel right away. Day one. Day one. Right that away. That you are a charter member. You I, have, I have the card. I have my card. I saw some people are putting those on their Christmas trees. I might try to sneak mine in there as well. No, having that access to just so many more films, it's great. I don't buy DVDs of Criterion releases, so it's always great to be able to still see those in a way and form that's Mm -hmm. of a higher quality still. They have so many Eclipse titles, so many of those DVD-only releases. It's a great sense of like, oh, what might be coming out. And obviously, there's some films that probably are never going to get a physical release that are on the channel simply because they are maybe too obscure for it to be worth the release. So they still have the rights to these films, and they still have an audience out there. And I think the channel has only continued to grow since it first launched, obviously, way back in the Hulu days and the Filmstruck days and what we have now. And one thing that I think I'm very grateful for, I didn't realize how much I was going to miss it at first when I heard that the Criterion channel was coming back. During the Filmstruck days, most of what I was watching were still Criterion channel exclusives, but it was good to have that classic Hollywood approach that was becoming more and more prevalent within Filmstruck. And I feel as though Criterion realizes that that was a big draw for a lot of people coming into Filmstruck. And I think that they've been doing great due diligence in making sure that they are still representing that. When they first launched, they had Columbia Noir, and obviously the MGM musicals a couple months ago, and now this month, which I'm sure we're going to be getting into, the, the Betty Davis films. Yeah, I have to say that I am still shocked by how much content they're getting every month. We're getting a plethora of riches that I just was not at all expecting when Criterion made the announcement that they were going to have their own service. Yeah, 
How do you handle the limited engagements? Because there are so many every month that are coming and going, and it's like a fire hose that gets turned on at the beginning of each month. I think that you could very easily turn watching the Criterion channel into a full-time job and work eight hours a day and never catch up fully. Um, Yeah. (laughs) My method so far has been to not look at when things expire and just be disappointed when they're Mm -hmm. gone. So being on this podcast has made me a little bit too aware of some of the things that are expiring in December, which I definitely need to prioritize. (laughs) It's a catch-22. It's like, oh no, that's leaving? I need to watch that still. Depending on how much time you want to devote to the Criterion channel, again, if you have multiple methods of watching movies, if you're very indecisive like me and you never know what you want to watch until you should have been putting on a movie 10 minutes ago, (laughs) you might drive yourself crazy trying to catch everything. But it's nice knowing that even if you miss something great, the next month there's going to be something just as great that's come out that you'll want to watch just as much. I asked the same question in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group about how do you handle these limited engagements? And most people just really choose to focus on what interests them. They don't bother trying to remain viewing complete like our friend Michael Hutchins does. They just see the things that they really would like to see. There are a few people who really try to focus on the expiring titles. There are a lot of people like me who are overwhelmed and can't possibly keep up. (laughs) I have 35 titles that I haven't seen that are expiring this month. Oh, wow. And as I'm doing this podcast, I'm trying so hard to keep up but it feels like it is a losing battle. One of the ones that was added to the list was they set out to watch expiring and new titles, but their ADHD makes them go on unnecessary tangents and they have to see them through to the end. That's me. I didn't put that in the poll, but that's me. Yep, yep. Someone else said they go back and forth, no set plan, riding the channel like the world's greatest roller coaster. There are a handful of people that focus on the new titles. But I think one of my favorite selections here that was added in was, please someone, anyone, give me more time to watch movies. I think that is the cry of all of our hearts as cinephiles. As I see you posting late at night that you're starting your movie at midnight or 2 a.m. Who needs sleep when there's movies that I fall asleep during? I know. (laughs) I've gotten better. I've gotten better with falling asleep during movies, though. As in you do fall asleep during the movies or you don't fall asleep? I don't. I push through. That's my weird little thing. I hate leaving an unfinished movie for the next night. It's almost like, no, I need to finish it now. (laughs) Yeah, I've gotten to the age and the endurance level where I just kind of have to put a stop to a movie for a while and come back to it. I don't like doing that sometimes, but... You gotta do what you gotta do. I know, I know. Sometimes you do, unfortunately, have to sleep when it's three o'clock in the morning and you haven't finished your three-hour movie. (laughs) Well, Dave and I are going to be back to talk about the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of December. But first, I'm going to check in with Michael Hutchins, and we're going to dig into the history and status of Criterion's limited engagements. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, check out the complete podcast, hosted by Matthew Gasteyer and Travis Trudell covering the filmographies of the world's most renowned directors one season at a time. The Complete is dedicated to taking chronological journeys through the most rewarding filmographies in cinema. Each season covers one director, with each episode focusing on one feature film from their catalog. The first season was dedicated to Stanley Kubrick, while the second season covered Elaine May. The current third season is focused on Krzysztof Kieślowski, the Polish director most famous for the Decalogue and the Three Colors trilogy. Find out more at thecompletepod.blueberry.net. 
I'm here with Michael Hutchins, one of our regular contributors to Criterion Channel Surfing, as well as most of the Facebook groups dedicated to the Criterion Collection. He's joining me today to talk about limited engagements on the Criterion Channel. Michael, thank you again so much for joining me today. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Criterion, the channel, and their use of limited engagements. I want to maybe start a little bit earlier. How did limited engagements work with the Criterion channel on Filmstruck? What did that look like? It's similar to what they're doing now, except the sources that they pulled their limited engagements from were those titles that TCM had licensed for their side of Filmstruck. Mm. So they would take certain titles and create bundles with them, with the films that were in their permanent library. But other than that, the Criterion channel of Filmstruck was basically just the films that they had licensed from Janus Films, which is their permanent catalog. Their sources for limited engagements during the Filmstruck days were from TCM and whatever TCM had been able to license. So who are their sources now for limited engagements? Oh, there's a wide variety of sources. A lot of independent distributors like Film Movement, Oscilloscope, Milestone, Kino, even. And then they also get them from the studios, you know, like MGM, Fox, Universal, and Columbia. And surprisingly, they're even getting them from Studio Canal. That's mm -hmm. where we're seeing some of the films that are out of print physically are now available on the channel. And so, of course, we all know that licensing for the physical releases is separate from that of the streaming service. So that's why we get films like Grand Illusion and Knights of Cabiria and The Third Man. Yeah. It seems like with the Criterion channel, it opens up some avenues for them to be able to share films that they really love, they really like, they have a passion for, that they might not be able to get the rights to release on a physical disc. Oh, yes. Yes. And, and they're doing that with, with a lot of even more current films than you would actually have you know, thought that they would be doing you know, when they first heard about the new service. Yeah, the fact that two months in a row now they've had two streaming exclusives with An Elephant Sitting Still and Diamantino, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Yes, it is. Since the channel premiered in April, how many films have played on the service? How many limited engagements have been on there? Well, since April through December of this month, they will have almost 500 films. They're currently about 290. The rest of them have played and left. That's a lot of films when you come to think about it, you know, and adding that oh to the goodness. 1,700 that's already in their permanent library. So at any one time, you maybe have about 1,900 films to choose from, including those permanent titles and the limited engagement films. That's kind of overwhelming to think about how many titles they have sitting there and that they've had 500 limited engagement films in just a few months. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And considering on Filmstruck, the Criterion Channel side of Filmstruck, during that whole two years, there was only 230 films that were limited engagements. So that's a pretty good record considering it's only been around for nine months. I keep going back to this fear that we all had when Filmstruck died and the Criterion Channel came into being, that the Criterion Channel wasn't going to get the same robust offerings that Filmstruck had. 500 films in nine months is incredible. Averaging over the last nine months, more than 50 new films every month. So that's yeah. a good number just to digest. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, how long do these films stay on the channel? How long do we get the opportunity to see these limited engagements typically? When they first started the service, they promised, not implicitly, they actually stated that there would be a minimum of 90 days 
And for the most part, they've lived up to that, but there have been exceptions. Currently, of the ones that will have expired by the end of December, about half of them have played at least three months. About another third of them have played a full six months. The smaller amount of maybe 15, 16% played less than 90 days. But sometimes you, you get what you're given, so you just have to accept yeah. that, you know. Yeah, I, I've been surprised at the limited time with this huge MGM bundle. Yes, But yes. they give us that warning at the very beginning of the month so that we know what's leaving. Yes, how many services do that? So at least they're aware of their customers. How do you approach the limited engagements? What's your tactic? Well, let's say on the average, it's between 25 and 30 films a month that I need to add to my watch list. And then knowing they're going to be there at least three months, and some of them are going to be there for six months, I usually just start off with those films that I really want to see. You know, usually newer films or, or even classic films that I've heard of but never really had access to. That's usually, you know, the ones I watch first. And I try to stay viewing complete. And I've pretty much kept up with that. So far, no film that has left the service has escaped me, put it that way. <laughs> I've been able to see every film that has left the service. And even before the service started, I was already complete with their permanent films. So that just makes it so much easier. Yeah. Well, how often have you seen films leave the collection and then come back in these limited engagements? Well, it's, it's pretty rare. It's so rare that I would advise our listeners not to take that chance. I know yeah. people have asked about whether or not films will return. I just don't recommend you taking that chance. Yeah, yeah. We've seen a few films from Criterion's physical library also make appearances as limited engagements. What types of films typically will show up as a limited engagement that Criterion has released physically? It will be those films that they license from the major studios like Warner Brothers or MGM or 20th Century Fox. Those are the ones that you have to just understand that they will not be on the service as permanent titles. If the film opens with only the Criterion Collection logo, and then it starts with the studio logo, you can be sure those are limited engagements. That's really helpful to know. What else would you like to talk about? You know, you've been doing a lot of research into the Criterion Channel's history of limited engagements. What are some of the other things that you've discovered? I was looking at the number of films that are expiring each month and ones that are adding. I've discovered that there's going to be an average of about 50 films each month that they're going to add, and it's pretty consistent. There's not been any months that's been overwhelmingly a lot, except for one month they added a lot of short films. Other than that, what we're getting is feature-length films, about 50 each month. I've also determined that there's going to be some films that are showing, these are usually the short films, those would be the ones open with the logo for the Criterion channel. Mm -hmm. And that will let you know that this is a long-term license. That's just an assumption on my part. But these are just some of the same films that were around in Filmstruck. They opened with that Criterion channel logo then as well. Thank you again for joining me. I always love our conversations about the history and the numbers and digging into the different bits of trivia about the Criterion Channel. I feel like I learn so much every time we talk, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Josh. I had a great time. Where can people find you? I'm on Letterboxd at Michael Hutchins. In fact, if you go there, you'll see my list of all the limited engagements that are currently playing on the service. I try to keep that update whenever they load all the new films on the first of the month. And also you can find me in the Criterion Channel Club on Facebook and also in the Criterion Now Facebook page. Awesome.
Thanks again for joining me, and we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Dave, Eves, and I continue our conversation by talking about December's new releases and expiring titles. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out Criterion Reflections, hosted by David Blakesley. Join David and his guests on their chronological journey through the films of the Criterion Collection. Each episode provides an in-depth discussion into the cultural context for the films discussed and covers Criterion releases on DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, and the Criterion Channel. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Dave Eves, and we're getting ready to dive into the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of December. So, Dave, we have so many films that were added this month. It's incredible. Before I dive into the list, what are some of your first thoughts when you saw what was coming to the channel this month? My first thought was, wow, Betty Davis, because there are so many Betty Davis movies. And Betty Davis is one of those like golden age Hollywood starlets that I have not seen enough films from. So that was kind of, yeah, great. I have this here. I should take advantage of this while it exists. And I'm also glad they're putting out a blue Christmas bundle, even though everything in that bundle has been on the channel. In December, I try my best to consume as many Christmas movies as possible. So for anyone else like yeah. me, it's a good place to start because there are a few in here that are streaming only titles. Or if you're me and not going to buy a DVD of Mon Uncle Antoine, you can watch it there and get yes. that Criterion Christmas fill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to do a quick rundown of everything that is coming to the channel. So we've got starring Betty Davis. I'm just going to hit a couple of the titles in there because there are too many. <laughs> We're getting Three on a Match, Hell's House, Cabin in the Cotton, Little Foxes, Now Voyager, In This Life, of Human Bondage, Jezebel. I could go on, but I won't. We're getting directed by Andrea Arnold, three of her short films, along with Red Road, Fish Tank, and Wuthering Heights. Bogart's Beginnings, which has many of the same titles that are in the Starring Betty Davis bundle. The Art of the Heist, which has They Live by Night, He Ran All the Way, Rafifi, The Killing, Big Deal on Madonna Street, Italian Job, Friends of Eddie Coyle, a few others. Directed by Marin Ade, Forest for the Trees and Everyone Else. Starring Juliette Binoche, which has Rendezvous, Mauvais Sang, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and again, a lot of other titles. We're getting directed by Celine Siama with her recent release of Portrait of a Lady on Fire coming out to theater soon and just being announced for release on Criterion later this year. And so we're getting three films from her, Water Lilies, Tomboy, and Girlhood. That Blue Christmas Bundle that you mentioned, Dave, with Mourning for the Osone Family, Black Narcissus, Umbrellas of Sherbutter, Placido, My Night at Mods, Fanny and Alexander Kronos and A Christmas Tale. Three starring Michael Caine with Alfie, The Italian Job, and Get Carter. Directed by William Wyler with Dodsworth, These Three, Dead End, Jezebel, Wuthering Heights, The Letter, The Westerner, Little Foxes, and Best Years of Our Lives. 
We're getting the streaming premiere of Diamantino. We're getting Terms of Endearment, which has been added to the Mommy Issues bundle. We are getting the Juniper Tree starring Bjork, plus all of the shorts that were directed by that director as well. For the Criterion full editions, we're getting Something Wild, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, The Breaking Point, The Killing, Symbia Psychotaxoplasm, Tunes of Glory. Our Saturday matinees this month are The Black Stallion, On the Town, Murder on the Orient Express, and Oliver. Our double features are Scarlet Street and The Woman in the Window, Three on a Match and The Gold Diggers of 1933, I Married a Witch and The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, In the Good Old Summertime and The Shop Around the Corner. And our short plus features are The Cage plus Kess, Bad Night for the Blues and Mon Uncle Antoine, Presentation or Charlotte and Her Stake and Metropolitan, Wren Boys and Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence, and Coda and the Phantom Carriage. And finally, we're getting observations on film art with a piece on mise-en-scene in My Brilliant Career. Is that it? I know, I know. <laughs> but what am I going to watch when I've watched all of those things tomorrow? I really appreciate it. It seems like there's been a big focus on female representation within filmmaking. A lot of female directors are being represented within the channel. I know that that was a point of contention with Criterion maybe a year or so back, and they've been trying to correct that. And I think this is a really great start in terms of showing that the film canon does not just need to be old white men. It can be more than that. Yeah. I think that this is a great way to kind of introduce people to some new movies. And also, The Juniper Tree, wasn't that a physical media release from a separate label that's kind of getting almost the same treatment yeah. within the Criterion channel? I think that's great that they're having that partnership where they're getting not just the film that's being released, but some of the extras by putting out some of the shorts as well. That's a great partnership there. I absolutely love that they are highlighting female filmmakers as well. This is an incredible way for them to really push the canon forward, like you were saying, adding bundles of films by four different female filmmakers here with the Juniper Tree and Andrea Arnold and Maren Ade and Celine Siama. I mean, this is this is incredible stuff here. And I do think, not to keep going back to Betty Davis, but I mean, in the golden age of Hollywood, there's really not too much you can do. Yeah. I know they featured the Ida Lupino films on the channel, yep. but during that time period where women were not as welcome as directors, not maybe as welcome as writers, you still had these great personalities like Betty Davis that were starring in these films and carrying the films themselves. And by showing their faces, I still feel as though that is saying something in terms of showing that this yeah. is not just a male-dominated medium. This is not just a hobby for men. This is not just something that men enjoy. Because it's not. Movies yeah. are for everyone, and they should be for everyone. And I yeah. think Criterion is answering the challenge to the best of their ability. Yeah. Well, Dave, looking over this list, I would just love to hear some of your recommendations. What are some films that you think people should really catch while they're on the channel? I have a couple here that I definitely want to highlight. Number one, since, again, it is Christmas time, and this is one of the movies that I checked out during the fall of Filmstruck, unfortunately, and saw it for the very first time, The Shop Around the Corner, the Ernst Lubitsch film, starring Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. I'm sure pretty much everyone is familiar with the story in this, because, I mean, who hasn't seen You've Got Mail, which is a remake of yep. The Shop Around the Corner. Of all the great movies Ernst Lubitsch made, this is my number one. This just has a certain mm. joy and wonder about the shop owners in this Czech neighborhood. This movie is a complete and utter delight. It will bring a smile to your face. I think it embodies everything about the Christmas spirit that I love in movies like this. Definitely check it out while it's up there. 
I'm also going to highlight, again, I'm bringing up Betty Davis because I can't help it. Bring up two Betty Davis movies that are on the channel. The first is Dark Victory, which I just watched for the very first time in my life very recently Mm. because of the channel. Surprise, surprise. This is a film that has been on my watch list for like decades now. Something that I've wanted to check out. Given the title Dark Victory, I would have expected a more film noir type movie. It is not. It is far more about empowerment in a dark time. I won't give away too much about what's happening in it. You get a very early performance from Humphrey Bogart. Betty Davis shines completely in this movie. Definitely check it out. It is wonderful and it is a joy to watch. Next one, more Betty Davis, now Voyager, also available on Blu-ray. I'm the type that likes to blind buy my Blu-rays. I know not everyone is like that. This is a great chance to check out this movie before purchasing it if you've not seen it. Likewise, this is a wonderful, empowering movie. I'm beginning to see that that's kind of the theme that was running through Betty Davis's career in the 30s and 40s before the All About Eve era kind of struck in. This one blew me out of the water. It does kind of start off a bit like a traditional romance and then just twists and turns into a really great place of female empowerment. I don't think it's spoiling too much to say that in this one, she begins as the frumpy spinster aunt that is having a nervous breakdown and needs to be cured of her frumpy ways because she has been shoehorned into not being her true self by her overbearing mother. And let's just say that this movie is absolutely terrific. Definitely check it out. And last but not least, the one I want to highlight today, I'm surprised that Criterion put this out in December rather than November. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, November is a very big film noir following in the film Twitter community. But I've also heard of people carrying it over into November. And if you're doing that, Rafifi is a great Uh chance to keep the noir train rolling. This is directed by Jules Dessan, who was a classic Hollywood director, blacklisted, obviously for his communist uh, leanings in the past, went to France to start making movies. I believe this was his first movie he made when he got into France might be the greatest heist picture ever made. If you've been in film school, you might have seen the infamous heist scene, which is filmed completely in silence without dialogue or music. That scene is just one of many great scenes within the film itself. This is definitely one of the greatest heist films you can see, if not the best. So again, since they are presenting it fully within the channel with all the extras, definitely check it out. Although I will say it is completely worth buying. But again, if you'd like to test it out before you buy it, this is your chance. Yeah, Rafifi is one of those early Criterion releases for me that just got me hooked on the collection. It is so compelling and so riveting from beginning to end. Like you, I caught shop around the corner during the Filmstruck final days. Mm-hmm. My wife and I watched the Ernst Lubitsch bundle mm-hmm. that was on Filmstruck together and kind of finished that up. That was just such a beautiful film, such a joyous film. I love Lubitsch's rich humanism and, you know, for that time period, how progressive he is mm-hmm. with his female characters and with the relationships between the men and the women. I just find he is such a consistently refreshing filmmaker. and. I love all of his work so much. What I find very refreshing in his films, you don't see this very much during this time period. You see it a lot more now, which makes his films have a very modern touch, is how delicately he's able to balance between humor and melancholy. Melancholy and humor in that time period are typically very far apart when it comes to films. But he is able to kind of switch between the two so 
easily that does give it that very human, very full-rounded, three-dimensional feel, which is great. It's like a Wes Anderson movie made in the 30s, basically, in terms of how he's balancing that out. And my goal for December is to get my wife to watch this movie because I know she would love it. She loves old Hollywood movies, but it's the kind of thing where after like a long day of work, it's like, I need something where I can turn my brain off. I was like, oh, you could, no, you kind of need to focus in this one. So I get why it's yeah. the harder pitch sometimes, but I know that mm-hmm. if I get her to watch it, it's going to be one of her new favorites. Yeah. Well, my recommendations, I do want to start with the streaming exclusive of Diamantino. It is absolutely bonkers bizarre it has fluffy puppies and it explores gender fluidity and sexual identity and fascism and all sorts of ideas mixed together it feels like a very urgent film from this italian filmmaker and it's all shot in kind of a matter of fact way that worked for me it doesn't work for everyone but i found it to be absolutely riveting when i saw it in theaters and I'm really glad that Criterion is getting the chance to stream it first. It's bonkers, and if you're up for bonkers, it's a lot of fun. The Blue Christmas Bundle, I think, is really lovely. Like you were saying, there is a lot of really great stuff here. I especially want to highlight Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is one of those really special films that has so much melancholy and emotion. And the final sequence is still one of the most moving in film. It's funny because that's one that I don't always associate with Christmas, but I see 100% why it's there. Yeah. That final moment just sells it. Dodsworth, the William Wyler film, I really loved Dodsworth. It's the story of a older American businessman who is traveling the world and strikes up a romance. And it is beautiful and life-affirming and it's gorgeous. And then my final recommendation is Three Colors Blue catch it as you prepare for the final episodes of the complete Kuzlowski podcast. Three Colors Blue is probably my favorite of Kuzlowski's films. It overwhelmed me when I saw it for the first time. There are shots that bring me to tears. Three Colors Blue is an incredible exploration of grief, and I think it gives Juliette Binoche one of the great performances of her career. I concur. Now, strangely enough, I associate the Three Colors trilogy very much with this time of year. This is the time of year when I first watch them. There seems to be a sort of melancholy warmth about them, which is like perfect for the Christmas season. I'm probably just going to end up rewatching all three of them because they're all perfect. I think it's a smart choice, Dave. I would recommend all of our listeners do the same right now. And just to echo on Diamantino, I'm looking at the cover for it right now. I'm sold on that alone. What a poster. Yes. Like I said bonkers is maybe the best word that i can use to describe it that should be the new channel thing for january bonkers movies we got diamantino we got house (laughs) yeah yeah what are some of the films that you're really excited to be catching while they're here on the channel well again i start off with some betty davis the little foxes is a movie that i've actually heard a lot about i know that lady p from Flixwise is a big fan of this and did a whole episode highlighting mm-hmm. it and ever since then i've been wanting to check it out but oftentimes with some of these older movies where there's not a blu-ray release there's not always that impotence to watch it right away but now i have it right in front of me with the criterion channel 
another film that's always kind of struck my interest from the Criterion DVD-only days. Let me see if I can say this without butchering the title. Symbiopsychotaxoplasm seems like an interesting pseudo-documentary of sorts. I know that that's been on the channel since the Hulu days, but it's always been kind of sticking around. Now that it's kind of coming back with the Criterion channel, it's, I think, the best time to maybe check it out. And finally, I mean, especially after watching Dark Victory, I'd love to see more of these early Humphrey Bogart films since they have highlighted them in the Bogart beginnings. And I guess I'll be watching more Betty Davis movies that way because they seem to have been paired quite often. So I think that's going to be a great way to kind of see a little bit more of both of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talked about the focus on female filmmakers, and I am really excited to check out the films of Marin Ade. I loved Tony Erdmann when I saw it in the theaters a few years ago. I love that movie. I did not connect that that was the same director. Had I known that, this probably would have been on my list, so I'm really glad I'm having this conversation with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was a delightful film. You talked about melancholy and comedy, and I think she does that really well. Mm -hmm. It was really charming, really fun. So I'm really excited to get to check out her earlier films. Me too. Oh my goodness. Andrea Arnold, I really love Fish Tank. I loved American Honey. I found that really gorgeous to watch. I really like what she does as a filmmaker, and I am very eager to catch her early work with Red Road, and I am very excited to finally get a chance to see her adaptation of Wuthering Heights. Andrea Arnold, I think, is one of those really unique voices in filmmaking. And again, I love that we're getting a lot of her work. And The Juniper Tree is one that I hadn't heard much about until I heard about the restoration from Arbelos. And this is a really great chance for me to be able to preview it before picking up the disc. Again, Criterion getting a really important film on the channel and providing a really invaluable service to us. So I do a poll in our Criterion Channel Club Facebook group as well, and I always try to see what people are most excited about. And most of the time I can kind of gauge where people are and kind of guess. This was a big surprise. The number one bundle that people are most excited for is the starring Juliette Binoche bundle. People are really eager to catch up on the handful of films that are new, and they're very eager to catch up on the films that are leaving. Betty Davis is number two, which is not surprising at all. I think Betty Davis is the big draw and the kind of the crown jewel of this month's new releases. And there's so many of them. Yeah. And then The Art of the Heist. I don't know if you've seen the episode of Rick and Morty about heists. Hopefully that doesn't distract people from that. <laughs> they have HeistCon, and the logo for HeistCon looks very much like it's ripping off the cover from Rafifi from Criterion. Yes. And it's making fun of heist movies, but it's making fun of more modern heist movies. But it's a loving thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think heist films are always going to be popular. So it makes sense that people are excited to catch those. I always like to see what people are excited about catching when they come. But Criterion giveth and Criterion taketh away. And we're losing a bunch of titles as well. So at the end of the month, we are going to be losing the two Rebecca Miller titles that are left from her bundle. We're going to be losing Angela and The Ballad of Jack and Rose. We're going to be losing the last two Richard Lester films, Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. We're going to be losing three films from Ida Lupino, Not Wanted, The Bigamist, and The Hitchhiker. It looks like Never Fear will still be on the channel. We're going to be losing the Directed by Bruno Dumont bundle with Flander, Camille, Claudel, 1950, Little King King, and Slack Bay. But I believe La Vie de Jesus and La Humanité will be remaining on the channel. 
We'll be losing the Cinematography by Jack Cardiff bundle, which has the documentary Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff. We'll be losing Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, Fanny and the Girl on the Motorcycle, but the Powell and Pressburger films will still be there. We're going to be losing all of the Val Luton Presents bundle. We'll be losing the rest of the MGM musicals from the Golden Age bundle. We will be losing the Directed by Errol Morris bundle with Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control in the Fog of War, but the films Gates of Heaven, Vernon, Florida, Thin Blue Line, Brief History of Time, and Tabloid will still be there. We will be losing the Directed by Byron Haskin bundle with I Walk Alone, War of the Worlds, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And we're going to be losing a bunch of individual titles, Burning Bush, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Unbearable Lightness of Bean, which is premiering this month, is going to be leaving this month as well, Arsenic and Old Lace, Burn, Frida, The Devils, Freaks, and Persepolis. Those are all going to be going away. We'll be losing the Criterion Collection edition of The Devil's Backbone. We'll be losing the out-of-print Criterion release of Diary of a Chambermaid. We'll be losing the Saturday matinee of The Bear. And we'll be losing the double feature of Teamin and Raw Deal. So again, Dave, I have 35 titles here to try to catch (laughs) in the next few days. Thankfully, I have a vacation and the holidays coming up. You should be able to bang this out in a couple hours, I think. That's what my thought is. I think I'll catch up today, maybe. Just turn on multiple TVs at once. What do you recommend that people catch before they leave? What are the things that you think are must-watches? My number one here, simply because it's so hard to find outside of it being on the channel, I'm a little bit sad that it was only there for such a short time, is Ken Russell's The Devils. This is a fantastic movie. I think it's near the top of a lot of people's wish lists for upcoming Blu-ray releases. Everyone wants this to come out from Criterion. I watched it last year on the channel because I knew it was a very limited engagement. It's my favorite Ken Russell movie I've ever seen. It is magnificent. It is truly a masterpiece. It's a great exploration of witch hunts, of basically how a complete and utter situation can be taken out of control through paranoia, through plotting, through all of these different methods. And it's certainly an uncomfortable film to watch. And of course, you have all of the infamy surrounding it because of the fact that it was famously banned, famously edited quite a bit for being blasphemous, for being a little bit too sexual. I still think that stigma follows it from Warner Brothers and why it has not been more widely seen or more widely released. So even though this is not the preferred director's cut, I do know that Ken Russell wasn't too ashamed of this version. So it's still worth watching. I still think it stands as a very momentous film, definitely one that everyone should be checking out while they can. In terms of some of the sets that are leaving, I'm sure anyone that knows me knows that I'm a bit of a horror junkie. Val Luton, his films are all wonderful and magnificent. Please check those out before they leave. My personal favorite from this bunch is I Walked with a Zombie, though some of the other ones that stand up there, obviously Cat People, which has its own release. The Leopard Man is great. Curse of the Cat People. Honestly, I'm just listing all of them right now. These are all great films, very moody 1940s horror films made on very slim budgets, but did a lot with what little they had. And finally, I'm going to recommend that out-of-print title, a DVD-only release, unless you want to spend, I don't know how much it is to catch some of these DVD things, but I'm a huge fan of Luis Manuel, Diary of a Chambermaid. This is a great, somewhat more straightforward film from a surrealist filmmaker. He does a lot of great explorations of female characters, and this is, like I said, one of his more straightforward ones, kind of at the start of his new renaissance when he started working in Paris. Great performance from Jean Moreau, really just a great exploration of class in Europe 
at the time, set during a time that Bunuel was very, very familiar with, and in fact even features a protest at the end that was inspired by a protest from his own film Lage d'Or. Definitely check this out while it is around, because even though Bunuel's French films are certainly some of the more talked about ones, this one maybe doesn't get as much attention as it should, and hopefully we should be seeing more of his Mexican work in the near future. Awesome. I will echo the devil's recommendation. This is just a gorgeous, moving, beautiful film from beginning to end. And I cannot wait until someone finally does restore and release this on Blu-ray because it is in desperate need of a high definition transfer and restoration. I have just started digging into the Val Luton bundle last night, and I am so excited to be doing this. The one thing I will say about my 35 titles, at least a good chunk of them are under an hour and a half. Yeah. That is maybe the one thing that is going to save me this month. My recommendations are The Ballad of Jack and Rose. I saw this back when it first hit theaters. It has a really compelling performance from Daniel Day-Lewis. I think it is a really strong film from Rebecca Miller. Really beautiful, really moving film. And I think that it is one that everyone should make sure to see before it leaves the channel. Persepolis is a gorgeous bit of animation. It is really a compelling coming-of-age story set in Iran during the revolution. Highly recommend checking that one out. And if you are at all a fan of Powell and Pressburger, like I know most of us are, the documentary Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff is a must-watch. It is a really incredible look at the career of one of the great cinematographers of film history, and it really covers the breadth of the work that he was doing with Powell and Pressburger and across so many different genres. So those are ones that I would highly recommend checking out. Dave, what are you really excited to catch before they leave the channel? I'm changing around a few of the things that I plan on mentioning here. Number one, I'm going to say Persepolis right now, because I realize that I've not seen that movie yet. I remember when it first came out, I remember thinking that looks good and forgetting that that's available to me so easily now and that it's leaving so soon. That might be jumping near the top of my watch list. Likewise, Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff. I love Palin Pressburger. I have not seen this film yet, so I'm very eager to check it out and watch it. And I know we're losing a bunch of the MGM musicals. I'm not going to have time to watch all of them, but I definitely want to check out some of them while I have them available. I will say that the musicals, I watched the handful that expired last month. I did not realize how much I was going to become a fan of Judy Garland as a performer. But, oh my goodness, there are so many films with her, and she is, even in a middling movie, an absolute delight to watch. I will probably be prioritizing the films that she appears in. I did not know how good she actually was. That is good feedback for my approach. Yeah. I am really interested in Burning Bush. I really like long-form storytelling. Whenever I can go and sit in a theater for eight hours and watch something that challenges me, I'm going to try to take up that challenge. And this isn't eight hours long, but it is a long-form series by Agnesia Holland, who directed Europa Europa. I'm always curious to see how filmmakers tackle that type of a story. I am very eager for all of the B-movies that are on the channel. I think these are fun, especially in the midst of a vacation. But the ones that I think I'm most interested in are the Bruno Dumont films. I caught the Joan of Arc film that he did last year when I was doing my award season run. And this 
heavy metal musical about the childhood of Joan of Arc, I found so utterly compelling and captivating with headbanging nuns and a young thrashing Joan of Arc that I will check out anything that Dumont does, even if it isn't entirely successful. I'm excited that we have so many of his films to see. The only film of his that I've seen is La Vie de Jesus. And I've seen the mm-hmm. trailer for Slack Bay. I remember wanting to see that when I was out in theaters. And that being my only two exposures to him, they seem so starkly different. I have no idea what to expect with his films now because La Vie de Jesus is so grounded in reality and Slack Bay seems so whimsical and surrealist. Mm-hmm. I'm genuinely, pleasantly intrigued to check out more. And I know that Cahir's De Cinema just put out their top 10 films of the decade and Lil Quinquin made that list even though that was what a tv series but I guess it's presented in a three and a half hour form here that's on that list so since I have that in front of me that's definitely going to be prioritized and it seems fun and quirky and Twin Peaksy so that's definitely going to move to the top of my list but Slack Bay looked fun I missed that in theaters so Bruno Dumont is definitely going to get at least a little bit of my attention this month that's great that's great When I took the poll in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group, Persepolis was number one. Again, that was a little bit of a surprise. I expected maybe the bundles to get a little bit more attention. Bruno Dumont, that bundle was number two, and Val Luton is number three. So I think we're right in tune with where most of the community is for what we're hoping to catch. Hooray! We're right in the middle of America here. Let's not rock the boat here. We're going to stay with the norm. Exactly, exactly. Well, those are the Criterion Channel's new and expiring titles for the month of December. Dave and I are going to be continuing our conversation in just a moment as we dive into the Criterion Channel's back catalog and take a look at some family matters. But first, I'm going to speak with our friend Matt Gastire of The Complete Podcast to talk about some tips and tricks for keeping up with all of these new and expiring titles. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out Good Times, Great Movies, hosted by Doug McCambridge and Jamie Lorello, a podcast about the best, but usually the worst, of 80s cinema. Every other Friday, Doug and Jamie discuss a film from the 80s. Some are films they haven't seen since they were kids and offer a contemporary perspective. Others are films they've never seen before but probably should have. Do they hold up? Are they classics? Or would these films just be better off having been lost to time? Find out more at goodtimesgreatmovies.com. I'm here once again with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast, now in its third season, this time exploring the complete filmography of Krzysztof Kozlowski. He's also created a set of essential letterboxed lists for anyone beginning their journey into the Criterion Collection called How Do I Criterion? Matt, thanks for coming on and joining me again. Thanks for having me back. Tell me what's going on with The Complete and where are you in your journey with Kozlowski? We just completed, no pun intended, the mini-series on the Decalogue, and so we will be doing a Decalogue wrap-up episode coming up in the next couple weeks. And we actually already recorded an interview for the episode with a very special guest, and we were very happy with the conversation. So I hope everybody enjoys that. And then after that, we are on to his final four masterpieces. So hopefully we'll close out with a strong run before we move on to somebody else. Awesome. 
That sounds really great. I'm excited to move into this final stretch. This has been a really exciting season to really dive into some of those early works by Kozlowski and now move on to these masterworks. Well, Matt, this is your third time on the show. I am really excited to have you on this month because I need some help. There are (laughs) so many films that are expiring this month. I'm now at 35 films that I have not seen that are leaving by the end of the month. And I just, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I need your guidance and I need your help. How do we begin to tackle all of this limited content that comes and goes from the channel every month? Well, the first part of any problem is just accepting that you have a problem. And so (laughs) I think it's very important for everybody out there to know that they're not alone and that you're not going to be able to do it. (laughs) once you realize that you're never going to be able to see all the movies that you want to see on this great service with so much content being put up every month and leaving every month your life will be a little bit less stressful just slightly because you'll still try (laughs) to get to everything that you want to get to but at least you know that you don't have to truly finish unless you're michael hutchins so yeah i think that's the first thing that i do is just as i'm scrolling through the list on the first of the month i think to myself don't worry i'm not going to get to all of this (laughs) i think the second thing is just prioritizing the movies that you want to watch and then the movies that you're worried that you won't be able to watch afterwards Mm. a good way to do that actually and i keep referring people to letterboxd because it's such a useful tool if you go to one of the many lists that people have made of the titles expiring this month or of the titles that are currently streaming on the channel that people keep curated and sort by popularity and go to the bottom there's a pretty good chance that that's where the movies are that are pretty hard to see and may not be available on any other streaming service in the future so if there are titles at the bottom of that popularity ranking that you want to watch i would prioritize those before anything else ultimately you just kind of have to pick and choose the top movies that are most important to you and focus on those and don't worry about trying to run the table because it's very hard to do unless you're retired and a machine What are some of the other ways that you look at organizing your limited engagements, you know, beyond the acceptance of the fact that you're not going to get to it all? (laughs) At the beginning of the month, when the new titles come on, I will look through them and I might add a title or two or a bundle. If it's something that I really am excited to watch, I haven't blocked out space for an elephant sitting still yet, but that is in my queue waiting for whenever I have the opportunity to watch it. But for titles that are not expiring for months, I kind of just leave them alone and really focus on the stuff that is expiring. I mean, I'm sure that there are users who kind of just go on and browse the front page and see whatever is being featured at the moment or find something that they're interested in watching. Totally respectable way to experience this. I think it's the way that they designed it to be experienced. But I think for me, it's titles that are leaving are the ones that I want to prioritize. And so I really pick out the stuff that I'm afraid is not going to be available anywhere else. Like, for example, I wanted to watch all of the We're a Seth Cool films that were available, but they were expiring. And most of them are on Blu-ray. The Tropical Malady print that they had wasn't especially impressive. Mm-hmm. So it was a situation where I thought, OK, those titles are going to be around forever. So I have plenty of time to watch those those films again 
focusing on the stuff that is really at the top of your queue is important because otherwise you really will go crazy. It's not as punishing as Filmstruck, but I mean, especially this month, there is a huge selection of films. I mean, all of the horror titles that are expiring, a lot of the musicals, you know, it's tough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we've got a lot that are pretty long. The Val Luton titles are fairly short. Those are ones that you can probably cram a couple in in one sitting. But when you're getting into the two, two and a half hour running times, yeah, so not to mention that to Agnieszka those, Holland miniseries, yes. which it's, you know, I mean, I'd love to watch that. But what happens if I watch episode one and don't find the time for the other episodes before yeah. the end of the month? It's tough. You got to call in sick. Start kicking yourself. That's my there. advice yeah. is call in sick more. Yeah, I do start vacation tomorrow. So I am hoping that that might help a little bit to alleviate some of this. Do you create lists for yourself of the limited engagements so you can keep track? Do you consider limited engagements part of your attempt to be viewing complete for the channel? Or is that a project that you feel is beyond your ability to undertake? Yeah, that would be, I think, a never-ending Quixotic quest you know, my interests extend beyond this channel in terms of movie watching. And so I think it would be very difficult to give up the other avenues that I'm interested in pursuing in order to be complete in that regard. So I'm focused on a very long-term plan of watching everything in the permanent collection. I have less interest in trying to get to everything here. And honestly, as appealing as it sounds to watch everything that they pick, it's still not quite the same in terms of the connection to Criterion as a company, because Mm. these titles aren't titles that they negotiated the rights for. They're not part of their regular stable. They're never going to be released on Criterion Disc, or at least not in the near future. And so, you know, as a fan of the company, I think of it less as actual Criterion content and more as just part of this service that they are providing, which includes content from a number of other great companies that sounds much more balanced and much more nuanced (laughs) than i often approach the channel (laughs) well you're Um, you're focused on i mean you're focused on this stuff all the time so it's a it's a a little different yeah do you try to get a good sampling of the different bundles and the different avenues that they're trying to explore through the channel do you find value in that or do you find that if there's a bundle that you don't have much interest in you'll just skip that completely or will you still sample maybe one or two films out of it that's an interesting question i guess i'd have to say it varies i think that the best way to go about it is sampling as much as you can because that's really going to expose you to the stuff that is new and fresh i mean i think the one thing i would definitely advise people to do is try to watch as many of the shorts as you can because mm-hmm. that's most likely the only place you're going to be able to see those films and You know, something like the Susan Pitt bundle that's currently on the channel is so special because those films are much more difficult to see elsewhere through legal channels. So I think that aspect of it kind of mandates that you get a little bit out of your comfort zone. The bundles I'm adding to my list are bundles that I want to watch every film in the bundle. I do think it gives you a better impression of the overall experience, you know, something like the Columbia Noir bundle. 
picking and choosing the two or three best films or best regarded films in that bundle is not going to give you nearly the full perspective of that era of filmmaking at that studio that watching even the two or three worst films, I think, in the bundle (laughs) would give you. Don't be afraid to go out of your comfort zone or to put on a movie that you might think you're okay with having expire especially if it's grouped in with titles that you like or that you have seen before. Yeah. When the new list of expiring titles pops up, I have a little notepad open in my iPhone and I put up a list of all the titles so that way I can check them off one by one for the films that I haven't seen yet so that I can keep a running tally. It either is crushing to look at the open (laughs) boxes or it's really exciting as it starts to close in and I can check those boxes off. But that's one of those ways that I've been able to track those. Do you have any things that you do for yourself to keep track of, whether it's the limited engagements or whether it's this ongoing project? Do you have anything that you do to keep track of that beyond letterboxed? I use the famous Hutchins spreadsheet to track Mm. a lot of the permanent titles in the collection because it's just so easy to be able to sort by director or title or year or, you know, any of the various columns that he has. So that's how I keep track of the permanent collection titles that I need to watch. In terms of expiring titles, it's really just about queue management for me, bringing Mm. the stuff up to the top that is expiring and that I definitely want to get to. That's where I devote most of my effort. In terms of letterbox and expiring titles, like I said, popularity and highest rating sorting is nice, but because I'm not trying to watch them all, letterbox is less useful for me. Looking for all the titles that I've watched or haven't watched isn't as important to me. I would love nothing more than every month for 90% of the expiring titles to be movies that I've already seen and have no interest in rewatching. But sadly, that's typically not the case. Primarily for me, it's about making sure that you're getting to the stuff that you can't get anywhere else and then accepting that this is part of life. You know, (laughs) movies are born, they grow up and then they die. Thank you, Matt, for your words of wisdom, for helping us come to grips with (laughs) the transitory nature of all things streaming. We will see how this month goes. If the 35 titles come and go and I don't make it through them all, I will have to learn to let them pass through my (laughs) fingers like a stream. Thanks, Matt. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Where can people find you? I am Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd, and my show, The Complete Podcast, is at The Complete Pod on Twitter. Come say hi and listen to some Kieślowski. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Dave Eves and I get into the holiday spirit and discuss films about family that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out the Magic Lantern Podcast, hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane exploring the films we love and the things we love about them. The Magic Lantern is a film podcast hosted by Eric Long and Cole Rulane devoted to sharing their enduring cinematic memories. Join them for an ongoing, informal discussion of the classic and contemporary films they love and the things they love about them. If you've been looking for a podcast to explore old and new favorites with fellow film lovers, you've come to the right place. 
New episodes every other Monday. Find out more at magiclanternpodcast.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Dave Eaves, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. Because the Criterion Channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we really try to pay special attention to the titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. It's December, the holidays are upon us, and what better way to get into the holiday spirit than to spend some time talking about family, the good, the bad, the funny, and the terrifying. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterboxed list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. So, Dave, what is the first film that you have chosen to talk about today? So the first film, I'm going to give a double whammy of being on topic here. Not just Family Matters, but also a Christmas movie featured in the Blue Christmas Bundle. It is, let's see if I can not butcher his name, Luis Garcia Berlanga's film Placido from 1961. If you have not seen any of Berlanga's films, he's really only had one on physical media so far, which is The Executioner. Berlanga was a great criterion find for me. This is one of the most celebrated Spanish filmmakers of all time. This is a great film to really watch to kind of get a sense for his style, his rapid fire, dark comedy sensibilities. It is a send up slash satire of a program that was happening in fascist Spain at the time called Take a Poor Man to Dinner. So it is set on Christmas Eve and it is about a poor family that is trying desperately to get a paycheck so that they can keep their truck that they need to continue living, continue their livelihood. And it is completely zany. They live in a public restroom and basically Mm. while the guy is out driving the truck they've taken over the one stall and forced everyone to go into the other one and hand them like paper towels and things like that it's completely wacky and you get to see both like the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich as they go through this christmas eve night madcap just running from place to place trying desperately to find whoever they need to in order to get this paycheck in time to pay for their truck and it's really kind of making you think about like oh yeah we're gonna bring a poor man to dinner but is that really helping anybody because clearly these people that are really in need they don't need dinner and they need their paycheck in time Let's just say it gets completely zany. It's definitely one to pay close attention to. Berlanga's style is to have a lot of rapid-fire dialogue, and a big reason why his films hadn't really taken off in the U.S. until just now is the fact that they are incredibly difficult to subtitle because of the fact that so much of the dialogue is overlapping. So it's very easy, if you like, look away from the screen for just a second, to be completely lost in a scene. So... Yeah. <laughs> Definitely put on a pot of coffee while watching this one. It's only 90 minutes, but it's worth your complete while. It's definitely one that I've watched a couple times now because of the fact that I think it embodies a very interesting part of the Christmas spirit while still capturing that melancholy in a very darkly comedic way. So I highly recommend it. Oh, that's great. I really like Berlanga's films. I've only seen a handful, and he has this caustic wit. Like you said, an air of melancholy, and there's an edge to the humor as well. This one sounds really great and really moving, and I'm really excited to check this out. Thanks for those recommendations. It's amazing what he could get away with during a time where art was being suppressed. Like, he wanted to call it Take a Poor Man to Dinner, but he was not allowed because it's actually satirizing a real program that was being pushed at the time. So he had to work around it and was able to kind of criticize the customs and fashions of a fascist society without facing too big of repercussions. And definitely check out The Executioner if you have not checked that out. That one packs a wallop. That's really great. 
Well, my first film is Nagisa Oshima's The Ceremony from 1971. Nice. I'm a big fan of Oshima. I think he is one of my favorite Japanese filmmakers. I love Ozu. I love Kurosawa, Kobayashi. I really like my Japanese cinema, but Oshima holds the special place in my heart. He is incredibly political and he is angry and there is just this vibrancy and urgency to everything that he's doing. And The Ceremony is probably one of my favorite films from Oshima. He was part of the Japanese New Wave. This film itself chronicles a series of weddings and funerals over several decades in the life of the Sakuruda family. But, you know, instead of the joyous, hopeful, or even, you know, the bittersweet events that we might find in Ozu or Kurosawa, the ceremonies that we find here are constraining. They're repressive. There's this air of menace and doom to all of the proceedings. The year of each of these ceremonies coincides with significant events in what Oshima saw as Japan's post-war spiral. The family itself is deeply broken and it's controlled by a menacing patriarch and there's an incestuous inbred quality to the family. There's a repressive and controlling influence of the older generations over the younger generations. Oshima is using that in some highly symbolic ways. Japanese society is seen kind of in a microcosm in this family. They're unable to really break free from the self-destructive impulses, the shackles of the earlier generations. The incestuous relationships become symbols of Japan's xenophobia and fear of the outsiders. You have these relationships contrasted with the younger son's love of baseball and this push and pull between progress and tradition throughout the film. It's haunting. It is deeply depressing at times. It is gorgeously composed, though. The colors are rich and vibrant. If you know Oshima, you know he has some high theatricality in a lot of his films, and you get that sense of theatricality whenever you're at the Sakuruda residence, but it blends with more realism when we get out into the outside world. So you get a sense that the Sakuruda family is really cut off from Japanese society itself. There is a central wedding sequence in which the main protagonist is supposed to be getting married to a young woman who doesn't show up for the wedding. And it is perhaps the most excruciating wedding scene in film history. He's still made to go through with the wedding. <laughs> it's both hilarious and devastating and heartbreaking oh. at the same time. It's amazing how Oshimo was able to capture both emotions so vividly in a single scene. The pantomime of pulling the chair out for the bride and pushing the chair back in, of cutting the cake with the bride who's not there, it is, like you said, it's very funny, but it's also so deeply sad and it's incredibly powerful, the imagery there. I find this to be a really fascinating look at the ways family can control, the ways that we all often succumb to familial expectations. My choices for films tended towards the darker, so <laughs> definitely not the more heartwarming. But yeah, I just love the ceremony. I've talked about it on David Blakesley's Reflections podcast, and it was an absolute revelation when I watched it. I, too, love Oshima. I think he is probably my favorite of the Japanese New Wave directors. And likewise, I really love this film. I love his anger. I love his ability to really kind of poke holes in Japanese traditions and be so critical of Japanese society. 
I think his films typically work best when he's being more oblique about it. I think this is one of those, whereas Night and Fog in Japan is so transparent in what it's trying to criticize that it almost doesn't work as well. It just feels more of like a piece of anger and outrage. But I always like a bit of subterfuge in my political anger films. Yes. He obviously knows how to do it with that, knows how to do it without that. This is one of his greatest works. Perfect. Maybe not, unless you're having really bad family drama, maybe not the one to watch right before Christmas, but you know, maybe after Christmas. Sometimes it's cathartic to watch other families have bad times too. That's true. Well, Dave, what is your second choice for films to talk about? My second choice, it's also going to be Japanese. We both started off with more dark, critical examinations of the society in which they take place, but now I'm jumping back to Mikio Naruse's 1964 film, Yearning. Naruse is definitely a great filmmaker that his works can almost entirely only be found within the Criterion channel itself. Yearning might be my favorite of the ones of his I've seen. This is very much about families trying to exist in the post-war society of Japan, very much about that kind of industrious spirit of families trying to run a business. And in the centerpiece of this is a widow that is trying to uphold her dead husband's legacy, while his younger brother, who has kind of looked up to this woman, has been secretly in love with her for a very long time. And it's a kind of a great examination of taboos within a society, family dynamic that is maybe not the most healthy in terms of how it likes to preserve legacy, preserve these business tactics, and how everyone's trying to kind of profit off of the industriousness of another person that may not fully belong to the family in terms of the fact that she's a widow. But she is going through all of these steps because of her duties that she has bound herself to, while others may not be as appreciative of that fact. This is a great example of Japanese melodrama from this time period. It may not be everyone's cup of tea if you are looking for a slightly darker experience. (laughs) I think both you and I like a darker film. This certainly has some darkness to it. I can see at the time it being a little bit more taboo because of the fact that the main romance through line through this is between a widow and her technical brother-in-law. However, that doesn't strike me as the strangest or darkest thing you could examine within a film itself. It certainly provides enough of a challenge for these Starcrest lovers to have a conflict upon which they need to try to solve. Definitely a great work from Naruse. He's certainly very, very kind towards women within his films in a society like Japan, which is not always the kindest towards women. Definitely treats them on equal footing with men, but still very much understands their harder place within society. Definitely, if you Mm. have not checked out any of Naruse's films, this is a great place to start. It's, again, a 90-minute film, which makes it easily digestible. But, of course, it's going to be a little bit more dramatic, a little bit more heart-wrenching. Maybe not the thing to watch Christmas Eve. That sounds great. I believe I've only seen some of the Eclipse Naruse films. But, yeah, I have not gotten into the back catalog for Naruse, so this sounds great. Thanks for this recommendation as well. Of course. I'm going to go even darker, if it's possible, with my second recommendation. With Michael Haneke's 1989 film, The Seventh Continent, (laughs) I don't know why I went dark with both of my films. It's just what came to mind when I was looking at family (laughs) films on the channel. This is Michael Haneke's first feature film. He had spent years working in theater and television, and this was originally developed as a television project based ostensibly on a true story that he read about. 
It follows a family of three, a father, a mother, and a young daughter through the daily routines of their lives in three chapters over the course of three years. So we get one day each year. And in each of these chapters, we see this deep disconnection, this deep alienation with each other, with their extended family and their colleagues, their classmates, with the world around them. And it just gets deeper and more poignant and more defined as time progresses. And it leads to one of the most shocking and horrifying endings that I have ever seen in any film. You know, I think that Hanukkah is one of those filmmakers that I'm always really drawn to. I know that he can be really divisive, but I find something about his exploration of alienation and this kind of modern human condition really compelling. And as I've been doing a little reading about him over the last couple of days and thinking about this film and thinking about talking about it, some of the critical thought and discussion about it has talked about how Hanukkah is really interested in deconstructing this idea of alienation that in a lot of our 90s indie films, the films that I grew up on, you have a lot of these disaffected posers and alienation is cool. You're out smoking cigarettes and mad at the world and you're smarter than everyone else. And Hanukkah is really interested in showing that alienation as this deep sickness, as this deep dysfunction, this deep and profoundly terrifying condition at the heart of modern society and the modern capitalist societies of the West. The film itself is really simple, lots of slow shots, lots of simple takes, and the pacing is very measured, and it adds to the sense of eeriness. You can sense these characters deeply trying to connect with their emotions, to connect with themselves and each other, but they just can't. And it makes everything that happens all the more heartbreaking, but also all the more eerie and unsettling. From the very beginning, my skin was crawling. It's almost a horror film without being a horror film. Everything just kind of keeps adding to that growing sense of dread. And I think the film really gets to the heart of brokenness that exists within so many families here in the West. We paper it over with so many things, especially at the holidays, when we are constantly buying stuff for each other, for our kids. We're moving from disposable entertainment to disposable entertainment, but it just kind of exacerbates those feelings of loneliness and isolation. I think this is a profoundly disturbing film, but I also think it has a lot to say about modern life, and so I think it's an important film as well. So this sounds like the one to watch with the family on Christmas Eve is what I'm hearing. That, I think, is exactly what I'm saying. This is one that I am going to share with my parents, who are definitely going to want to watch this. <laughs> I've actually not seen this one. Hanukkah can almost be sometimes too much for me in terms of disturbingness. Yeah. He would be a difficult filmmaker to binge, in my opinion. This is someone who can binge Igmar Bergman yeah. movies all day long. I'm definitely going to try to check yeah. this one out. And I think this may be in a filmography that's fairly difficult. This may be one of his most difficult ones. Wow. Well, that is four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Placido by Luis Garcia Berlanga. The Ceremony by Nagisa Oshima. Yearning by Mikio Noruse. And The Seventh Continent by Michael Haneke. Dave, I just want to thank you again so much for joining me today. Where can people find you online? You can find me most often on Twitter. I'm there almost all the time. At Cinema versus Dave, that is Cinema vs. Dave. I'm also on Letterboxd at the same handle. 
You'll see me kind of mulling around the Facebook groups as well that many of us frequent. I'm not as active there, but I occasionally pop up in comments or posts. So yeah, I'm all over the place. Thanks. Thank you for having me. This has been great. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing on our new home network, CriterionCast.com, and our new website, CinemaCocktail.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is now a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. We'd like to thank all of our generous Patreon supporters and would like to give a special thank you to our latest supporter, Matthew Watson. I really appreciate all of your support. We couldn't do the show without you. Next month on the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, my guest and I will sit down to discuss police stories, stories of crime and justice to kick off the new year. But first, Dave and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films about family that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.